Patricia, and the twins, Johnny and Emil. Besides teaching us to do whatever it took to get by, my mother taught us all something else. What I came to think of as the no-talk rule. What that meant was that you didn't ever really complain or explain. You kept your feelings and opinions to yourself, and in this area, Ma practiced what she preached. Since she didn't talk much about her growing up years, I can only imagine they weren't any picnic for her. The little she did say about them didn't paint the rosy picture. Through a family arrangement, my maternal grandmother, Lella, was married in Sicily at age 13 to a man, perhaps boy would be a better word, who was 14, Frank Galtieri. I don't know when she first started having kids, but it couldn't have been too long after the wedding, since even though they were born so close together, she had 15 of them. If my mother's early life was anything like mine, I'm sure she spent a lot of it being taken care of by older siblings. I mean, I'm one of ten kids, and I can't imagine how much worse things would have been for us financially, with five more mouths to feed. Like I said, it couldn't have been easy on any of them. And now as an adult, I can see how much my mother's childhood influenced her, and influenced how she dealt with us. My mother was born in the United States in 1927. I'm not sure when her mother and father came over, but I do know that they left two sons back in Bari, Italy. They both came over, one right away and one later, my Uncle Joe, when he was in his 50s. I also know that the Great Depression started when my mother was two years old, and like just about everybody else, her family struggled to make ends meet. I don't know too many things about my grandparents. My grandfather worked in the ice and coal business, delivering to houses and apartment buildings all over Brooklyn. I heard that my grandfather, Galtieri, was a real womanizer, so I guess he was delivering other things besides coal and ice. It's kind of ironic, given the little I know about the two of them, that he delivered those two things, heat and cold. Like most people who came over, my grandparents settled in an area that was filled with people of their own kind. My grandfather must have been doing well enough at his job, because he was able to afford a house, the rambling Victorian that would be our family's headquarters for most of my youth and young adulthood, and which we always referred to simply as 689, was located between Dickmars and Avenue F in Brooklyn. This was the house my mother was born in, and where my brothers and sisters and I lived too, because shortly after my grandma died in 1949, my parents bought it for my grandfather for $10,000. From Uncle Funzie to Uncle Dominic to Aunt Tessie and the rest, most of my mother's brothers and sisters had settled in the surrounding area, most within a few blocks of 689. So we were always surrounded by family. Even today, my immediate family is very isolated from the rest of the community. For whatever reason, my brothers and sisters carry on the family legacy of keeping things in the clan. And unlike me, they do most of their socializing together. The olive doesn't fall far from the tree, I guess. Most of my memories of Ma's family are of large gatherings. Mostly I remember just a blur of noise and faces, lots of people struggling to be heard over one another. I know even less about my father's side of the family. His was much smaller, only three brothers and sisters total, and they didn't come around that much. Every day my mother was with someone from her family. As a kid, I used to get sick a lot with sore throats and other ailments, probably because I didn't eat very well and was always run down, so I stayed home from school a lot. 
I remember being home once when, after breakfast, my mother told me that I should stick around because she was going to my Uncle Mikey's house down the block. She wanted me to stay close to home because my grandfather was living with us at the time, and he was very sick. Looking back on it now, it seems awful that she would have left me in charge of him. I was only about six or seven at the time. My grandfather didn't speak very much English, so I remember thinking that if he needed something, I wasn't sure if I could help him out. I don't have very many memories of my grandfather, but I'll never forget what happened that day. I was in the living room watching television, cartoons probably, since it was morning and Betty Boop and Casper the Friendly Ghost were two of my favorites. To be honest, I wasn't that worried about being there with my grandfather. I was pretty content to be alone in the house and have it be empty and quiet for once. After a while, watching television, I heard what sounded like somebody talking. I turned down the volume and listened. I was a little scared. Now, one thing you have to understand is that, like a lot of kids, we had created a kind of spooky history about our house, a sprawling three-story with a full basement. The furnace was partitioned off from the rest of the space downstairs, and that's where my oldest brother, Frankie, used to have the kids assemble when we had a family gathering. The floor in there wasn't cement, but a kind of dirt and gravel, and the room smelled of heating oil, rust, and damp. It was lit by a single bare bulb that dangled by a wire from the ceiling. I can still picture Frankie's shadowy face lit by that crazy swinging bulb while he told us about how bodies had been embalmed there and the blood that had been drained from the corpses would come bubbling up out of the sewers. He'd point to the stained ground, and you could almost smell the blood and see it pooling. I had a pretty active imagination at six or seven, so when I heard that voice, it wasn't too much of a stretch for me to believe that it was a ghost or something coming out of the basement. Then I heard it again. Venica! When I heard the voice calling to me in Italian, I knew it had to be my grandfather. I didn't know what he might want or what I could do to help him, so I just froze for a minute, hoping he'd quiet down. When his voice rasped out my name and called me to him again, I had no choice. I crept down the hallway and stuck my head in the door. The curtains were drawn, the room dark, and he was lying on his back, his hawk's beak of a nose stuck over the blankets. Even from that distance, I could see the veins of his bony hands, looking like chicken's feet, holding on to the edge of the blanket. With the little Italian I had, I said, Sureka. Then he heard me say that I was there. When he heard me say that I was there, he told me again to come to him. He was shaking uncontrollably. I still don't know if he was shaking because he was cold or it was a symptom of whatever illness he had. Maybe he was just so close to death that his body was using up whatever energy it had left. Anyway, I was so young that his shaking had me cringing in fear. I still get weirded out whenever I think of it. But what happened next is even more bizarre. He patted his chest and asked me to get into bed with him. At first I wasn't sure what he was asking me to do, because my Italian wasn't so good. He kept repeating it in a kind of hollow, pleading voice that sounded so dry it was as if the words were scraping his throat as they came out. I was scared, but I also felt so bad for him. I have no idea what kind of pain he may have been in, or if he was hallucinating and thinking that I was someone else, but when I leaned over the bed, he pulled me on top of him. I just lay there with my head on his bony chest, his arthritic hands clutching me. I'll never forget how he smelled. The odor was like the worst cigarette breath you can imagine mixed with Vicks Vapor Rub. 
I guess what it really was, was the smell of decay. I stayed on top of him for a few moments, totally freaking out. Imagine this. I'm ten years old. I'm lying on top of my dying grandfather, and I have no idea what to do. Then he started to shake even worse than before and moan, so I thought he was about to die. I untangled myself from him. It's going to be okay, Grandpa. I'm going to get Ma, I told him before I took off down the street to Uncle Mikey's house. My mother and my aunts, Anna and Tessie, were all sitting around the kitchen table drinking coffee. And I remember that my mother's face went hard when she saw me, like I was violating the children shouldn't be seen or heard rule. You guys have got to come quick. Grandpa's dying. In an instant, my mother's expression went from stony to ashen. Everybody scrambled to their feet and ran back to 689 to check on Grandpa. He was still alive, but he wouldn't be for long. He died a couple of days later. It seemed funny to me then, and it seems especially odd to me now, that the kids weren't allowed to go to the wake or the funeral. I think my parents were trying to protect us from some of the harsher realities of life. I guess they didn't think that having to lie on top of my dying grandfather and possibly be the only one with him when he died wasn't potentially harmful to me. But seeing him embalmed and in a casket would have been. Go figure. I tell you this story because it gives you some idea of the weird things that happened to me and also to show you how my family operated, how we kids were in many ways expected to be like little adults and just how full of contradictions our lives are. Consistency is probably too much to expect of any human being, but as I look back on my life, I'm amazed both by the patterns that emerge, how we repeated some of what our parents did, and by how wildly I veered from their path. Contradictory, right? Finally, I tell this story because on some...